Welcome to another edition of Rock Vans Rollovers and Recovery. My name is Fingers, your host. Today's special guest is the guitar player, composer, singer, and uh, apparently the technical wizard uh, with Zebra, who is a band that, if you don't know, uh, came out of Louisiana back in the early 70s and uh, moved to Long Island, New York, where they became the favorites, uh, the rock and roll darlings of Long Island, if you will. Um, one of the tightest, coolest, greatest sounding trios uh, we ever got to see, uh, making their uh, way through the club scene and making their money to put back into the band by playing uh, songs by the Moody Blues and ZZ Top and Led Zeppelin and uh, throwing in some uh, cover tunes here and there, uh, or rather some original tunes here and there. And the original tunes caught on rather quickly. And with the support of a local radio station that I used to work at, WBAB, and their program uh, director at the time, Bob Buckman, a lot of light was shined on this band. And because of how good their songs were and how good they were up on stage, uh, they got a five-record deal with Atlantic Records, with Jack Douglas producing the first album. And I'm going to quote this from Wikipedia. You tell me if this is right or wrong. Zebra sold over 75,000 copies in its first week and spent eight months on the Billboard charts, peaked at number 29, which was deemed the fastest-selling debut album in the history of Atlantic Records at the time. Yes. Yep, that's that's the deal, yeah. So uh, you... There's a lot of qualifications for that, though, you know? Debut album. Mm -hmm. And... Debut album was defined as being nobody in the band could have been from a band that had been recording. So if we had Jimmy Page in our band, it wouldn't have qualified as a uh, debut album, you know? (laughs) Um, So, but, but none of us had been on a record that had been put out in, uh, you know, and certainly not the band. So that was the qualification. So that we met. Uh, you know, it kind of means that maybe we were the biggest bar band of all time. Because <laughs> well, that's who was buying the records, you know? <laughs> yeah, Our but, fans. you know, that's how, that's how it grows. I mean, um, the radio play certainly helped, uh, and that got you tours with Aerosmith and other bands that, that you were across the country. I remember myself being out in California uh, at a heavy metal convention, and driving along the coast with a buddy of mine with the radio playing, and who's behind the door came on. And uh-huh. I, as a Long Islander, it just felt like the coolest thing in the world to see your hometown band making it on the radio like that, you know? And um, and then to see you open up for Aerosmith and, you know, all the different things that go through. And... Uh, as I say, Bob was one of the guys that, you know, was a big champion of the band back in the day. And uh, and I was a fan of the band before, you know, there was any kind of, like, impact I could have. And when I when I think back at the, the time we've spent together, it's always been either me helping you to shine a light on either an event or an album uh, – or you helping me shine an event on a charity cause or an event that was helping other people. And that was indicative of, of, of what the kind of person you are. You're the kind of guy that always gives back. And I learned that when I first met you. Now, I had seen you several times in the clubs, but one night in Rum Bottoms, I ran into this band called Whitefire, 
without going into the long-winded story of how that progressed, we ended up playing at Speaks. And the PA in Speaks uh, that we set up, our PA, blew out. And we were like, what are we going to do? This is in the middle of the day. For some reason, you were at the club. And you arranged for us. And this was interesting because, especially back then, Bands didn't help bands. It was all like this, this competition thing, you know. No, you can't use my mic. Uh, you can't use my cord and, and I did this kind of stuff. And you got right to work and somehow managed to run our sound through the entire Speaks sound system, which was the entire club instead of just coming from the stage, which turned out to be really cool. And I was like, I was really impressed. They said, wow, that guy is really fucking cool. I'm like, he's, he's just is a, a, a good, helpful guy, you know? And then to get to meet you, you know, throughout the years and spend time with you, um, it's kind of, you know, you don't expect, or at least I didn't, you know, to expect. I wanted to be on the radio when I was a kid. I was blessed enough to get there. I, my motive was to turn people on to music. I never thought I was going to interview my heroes like Kiss and friggin' Eddie Money and Zebra and F- Twisted Sister and all these guys that I grew up loving. And to be sitting here with you now some 45 years later or so is a gift. And I, I really appreciate the fact that you would spend time with me on this new adventure that I'm doing uh, for rock fans, rollovers and recovery, because I think that if we can share about the humanity the human element that goes into every single one of us. We all live in a bubble. You know, there's the Led Zeppelin bubble. There's the, you know, there's the you know zebra bubble. There's my bubble. There's the guy who's a guitar player for the wedding band on the weekend. He's got his bubble, you know. And if you translate that into now at times, it's, it's like likes, <laughs> popularity on the internet. How many friends do I have? Da, 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 da. <clears throat> but we all have a certain amount of uh, influence as well as being influenced by others. And life is hard. And sometimes as much as our art can take us away from that light uh, or that life uh, incidents and stuff, um, sometimes it, it takes us down a peg. And some people step up to the challenge find a way to get through and keep motoring on and whatever way they cope. And then other people sadly clock out. You know, and I, th- I think that the, you know, desire to do this was to give people a chance to know that, you know what, you're not alone. Everybody has problems. And if my friend Randy Jackson can get over a problem or my friend, you know, Tommy Henriksen can get over a problem, then maybe you can, too, because we're all people. Yeah, so, you know, absolutely. And in addition to putting out five albums, you did your solo stuff with China Rain you also uh, went out and toured with uh, the original Jefferson Starship. Um, airplane. 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 Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The plane came before the jet. <laughs> yep. And uh, and did guitar and keyboards, I believe, for them, right? Yeah. Guitar, keyboards, and the little vocals. So is there any instrument you can't play? Yeah. I. There's a lot of them that I can't play, <laughs> but I'll, I, I can pretend to play any of them, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I did play... I did play the baritone horn when I was in uh, elementary school all the way up through college. Um, so that was my kind of 
intro into the you know symphonic realm of uh music and um <coughs> you know I, I, I didn't do any wind instruments so a, a saxophone or a clarinet i would just be completely faking harmonica you know? yeah i could play a little harmonica you know Not, <laughs> you wouldn't hire me in your band but you know but i could definitely blow it suck the harmonica you know? <laughs> i was always a fan of horn instruments and the harmonica as a matter of fact one of the reasons I would buy records is looking on the back, what instruments are in it, what kind of thing, you know. It's part of the reason I bought the first Eddie Money album. I was like, oh, it's yeah. got horns in it, too. It looks cool. Let's check it out. And uh, what a sweetheart he was, too. A funny guy. And yeah. God rest his soul, you know. So yeah. when so you sad. you uh, you met Felix first. Right. And uh, you were in a band together, and you left that band. Um, yeah. And then met Guy. Yeah, I mean, what happened with with Felix's band was uh, up until that point, I the only songs that I had ever written, I wrote when I was eight, nine years old with a, a friend of mine, a girl from down the block, Linda Rosenbaum. And we wrote a couple of songs because we couldn't play anybody else's songs. You know? I mean, it would have been nice to be able to cover somebody's song, but we weren't that good. So <laughs> we wrote our own songs. And uh <laughs> And Sounds so like that Joe's was, garage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, but then after that, I kind of just started listening and learning, and you know, and really just covering every guitarist that uh, that I liked, and and did that for you know up until the end of high school. Uh, so you're talking, yeah, probably like eight years of really just. To the grind and during that time i played uh <clears throat> i was i was up big time into sports i played football and i wrestled and uh and while i was in school i think i was in 10th grade at the time uh, i was playing basketball and i kind of did a jump shot it was in my driveway it's just a pickup game and uh and i fell back against the the wall and i hit my back and kind of hurt you know, but uh, we went, you know, to get an x-ray just to make sure everything was okay. And and when we were there, they discovered that, well, there was no, there was no break or anything. There was nothing wrong from the, uh, from hitting the wall, but that I had a uh, spondylolisthesis is what it's called, or spondylolisthesis. I can't, I don't remember how you pronounce it, but it's basically a, uh, where you're born without locks that lock your your vertebrae together so in one part of your backbone yeah wow. and uh and the doctor said i said well what can you do about it he says well you right now your 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 vertebrae are just floating there's nothing keeping them really in place except the fact that you got muscles around them and and whatever else you know is the spinal cord and uh he said so we went to a couple of different doctors to get opinions and uh there was one that said, oh, yeah, we could do the, we'll, we'll do the fusion and there won't be any problem. Uh, another doctor said, oh, you, yeah, don't even worry about it at all. You can just continue doing the contact sports. It's, you know, I've got pl plenty of guys with this, you know. And then the third doctor said, you don't have, I wouldn't do the, the, the spinal fusion because it's too risky. I would quit the contact sports and just leave it alone. And so that's what I did. I quit 
quit the wrestling and uh, and everything else. And and because of that, I guess I was focused more on the guitar. You know, pull the gu guitar was about it was like half a year for me with the guitar, and the other half was all sports. So uh, at when I got out of high school. Uh, I hung, I hung, I got out early. I got out early. I wanted to get out quick. They, they kicked me out of the band. <laughs> I got, I didn't even get to be in the band in my senior year. Uh, I, I was the one that got caught with the vodka bottle in the back of the bus. No. With, yeah. <laughs> at the football game. So I got kicked out of the band and I had to take Spanish, which I had already taken previously a little bit, but I got out at a half a year cause I had enough credits and, and then I went, you know, to college well, University of New Orleans, it was LSU and O at the time. And, but at the same time, I was playing foosball. I was a big foosball player. Now, uh, that's not a contact sport unless, unless you get really angry at somebody, <laughs> <laughs> which does happen. But, uh, but I would hang out at this place called the library, which was uh, a, a little bar and right, right, right around the university. And I spent a lot more time there than I did in school. And I ended up with a, I think I had a 0.3, you know, GPA. for my first first semester uh, in school, and 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 then they hired me at the library. The the manager hired me to uh, you know to to be the doorman. I wasn't I, I still wasn't 18 at the point at this point, you know, and uh, but he hired me to be the doorman, and uh, and I and then the next semester I flunked again. With I did a little better. I got a 0.7. <laughs> <laughs> and so my dad said, you're not going to school anymore here, you know? So I sat out for a little while, but in that time uh, was when I met Felix because Felix worked in a little place next door to the library where I, where I was working and it was a, a clothing store and he sold, you know, the sixties fashions in there. And, and the guy that, that Felix had in his band, who was a singer was a guy named Eldridge Madare. And he was the, day manager at the bar I worked at. So he was always talking to me about, uh, you know, oh, do you, you play guitar, huh? Yeah, because we're, we're looking for a guitar player for our band. And uh, and that's kind of how it how it happened. I went to Felix's house. He had uh, he had had to have surgery, he had some surgery done. And then after his surgery, I went to his house and met with him. And, uh, you know, he kind of it, it, it was let's just say it was pretty interesting, you know, and uh, it was kind of unlike, they were unlike any any people that I had met up until that point, you know, uh, they were determined to make it, you know, and, and and a lot of my friends hadn't written songs. All of the songs that, that we were going to be playing were all Felix's songs. He had written them all, Felix and Eldridge, the, the other gentleman I mentioned. And uh, so we played, played for about a year and uh, we played a couple of gigs and it, you know, it wasn't really working out. I mean, mm. we dressed to the nines. We had great clothes, you know. Yeah, from Felix's <laughs> store. <laughs> yeah, Felix's store. And uh, we had a guy named Rusty Hauser on drums and uh, a guy named Tony Kelsick playing bass at the time. Tony was into uh, Grateful Dead. He was the first guy I met who was a real deadhead, you okay. know. And this is back in 1972, 70, you know, 73, right around that time. And, you know, we all had our different ideas. Uh, Rusty, the drummer, was like kind of psychedelic, let's let's say. I'll just I'll just leave it at that. And uh, 
you know, the rehearsals would go where they would go. And we, we, we learned all the songs we were learning, and, but nothing had, new had come up. You know, we weren't learning anything new. We were practicing the same ones over and over. And we did a couple of gigs. And, uh, and then the, the rehearsals just got to be too, too crazy for me. You know, there was too much pot smoke. And not that I wasn't doing it, but during the rehearsal wasn't the time to be doing it. And we needed to get, so I just said, you know, I'm not going to do this. And I said, I'm done. And, uh, and then at that point, you know, Felix, they, they just, the band was falling apart anyway. So uh, it just kind of dissipated. There was a night manager at the, uh, at the library. His name is Keith Revels. And Keith said he knew a drummer that had just moved to New Orleans and was living down in the French Quarter. And he thought it would be great for me to get, you know, hook up with him and see what we could do. So, uh, he introduced me to Guy. I went down in the quarter one night to a place called Cosmos Part Two. And Guy even says he worked there. So I guess we both kind of were both working for the same guy <laughs> at, at some point in different places. But uh, but we started playing together and we had a keyboard player, uh, Tim Thorson, that joined us and we were doing progressive music. You know, we didn't have a bass player. Progressive for the time. We were doing some yes and uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer and uh, Jethro Tull, good you stuff. know, and and so we did that for a while, but we needed a bass player and feel and we were actually Felix was letting us use his apartment to practice in, you know, and he was despondent, not over only the only the band, but he had just broken up with a girlfriend that he was really in love with. And he wasn't he wasn't very happy. He was just sulking in the back. So I went to him and uh we we actually owed his brother at that point some money. His brother Buddy had loaned us money to get a PA system for the band, and we wanted to pay him back. Or I wanted I I thought we could pay him back, and I'd seen all these other bands doing covers, you know, out in New Orleans. I said, man, we could do this. This makes some money because there were a couple of bands. One of them was called Mink. Another one, Star. And they were they were they were doing great. They were packing places. And I said, let's go out and do this. So I said, Felix, can you play the bass? And he agreed to. I didn't I didn't know that he had actually played the bass in a band before the Shepherd's Bush, before uh -huh. the band I was in with him. So it wasn't too far fetched for him to do that. And uh, and we went out and started playing. And we I had some some connections with some friends of mine from high school who uh, were in fraternities and sororities in high school, if, if you can believe that and um they would they would have dances and they were always looking for bands so uh, the first gig we did was at one of these dances and uh we did uh well it was it, it, yeah it was a what was it up oh, i forget the name of the place it doesn't matter but we would get up there and play but the kids wanted to hear the music they could dance to they they didn't want to hear you know, yes, and all this stuff. I mean, you could dance to a little bit of yes, but it wasn't <laughs> dance music, you know? So we learned some David Bowie. Now the keyboard player was not happy with this. You know, he got into this to be the next yes, or the next Rick you know, Wakeman, Prague, Prague Kings, you know? And um, so he just like, he he, he left the band. Um, and I, I do have a, a funny story about it is that we're playing Suffragette City Bowie, so the kids are dancing, but something's not sounding right to me, you know, and I'm, I'm listening, I'm singing. And then I hear it's like the keyboard, you know, and I, 
and I'm I'm going over. The closer I get, I can hear he's not playing. Suffered to see playing something else. You know, he's got this big grin on his face. Now he's got a good ear. He knows what's going on. He knows he's not playing the right song. Right. You know? <laughs> and so I look at him and I go, "Suffragette City, Suffragette City." And he shakes his head no, and he's going tall tall you know and he's saying aqualung and he's playing aqualung oh over my god City, you know <laughs> he had a little too much to drink but uh but you know he he, he left the band he you know he, he wasn't into it so uh so then we had to kind of regroup and and figured we would do it as a three-piece we looked for a for a singer for a while uh and either the singers weren't good enough or the people we auditioned didn't want to sing didn't want to sing with us, you know. Well, I knew a lot of people in New Orleans, and some of them were already in bands. But uh, so we decided to go out as a three-piece and just share the singing. Felix had sang lead in the previous band. I hadn't really sung lead, but I I, could, I knew I could match pitch, you know. So and Guy had a great voice, and that's that's the way we kind of started when uh, we were just kept rehearsing, learning some Deep Purple. Uh, Guy used to sing "New You Fool No One." From Deep Purple, and he was took the lead, and it was big, big, big voice he had, you know, bigger than uh, whoever sang it on the record. I mean, it's huge, you know. Guy had that that it was just loud and big, and uh, you know, we went out and did these gigs, and it it started working out. Uh, now, to we, promote the band, what kind of? Uh, I mean, because obviously you're you're individuals, and you know, young, and how, what kind of guerrilla marketing and stuff did you get to get the name out? How, well, when, did, when did you come up with the name? We came up with the name on the first gig that we did as a three-piece. And what, what it was was we, st we still weren't quite ready to go out and play, but a friend of mine called me and begged me to play at their dance because their band had just quit on them or somebody got sick and they needed somebody and it was three days away. So I said, uh, yeah, I, sa I said, let me let talk to Felix and Guy. So we agreed we could do enough to just play this one gig and then we did. And then we went down to a place called The Boot. It was like a little bar in uh, off the Tulane campus. And we sat there and tried to, you know, come up with a name. I, I think each of, each of us brought like 50 names with us and we couldn't agree on anything. And there was a, as we were leaving, there was a picture, there was a frame with a decoupage of a Vogue magazine cover from 1926 with a woman riding a zebra. And I looked up, I said, hey, how about just, how about zebra? Let's call it zebra and both Felix and Guy. Yeah, let's do it. That's it. It just happened like that. Now, I had never heard of another band having that, you know, even something similar to coming up with a band name yeah. until I heard the other day. <laughs> the I Yugoslavian band? The huh? The Yugoslavian band? No, no. The Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones. What? Did you hear the story? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it, it it sounds pretty plausible, but it, it said that uh, they were playing and they wanted to promote their show. And so there was, I think the paper over there was called the New Music Express in England, right? Okay, yeah. And so they hadn't played a gig yet. And they're, uh, and, they, and so Brian Jones is in the phone booth calling the New Music Express and, to tell them, you know, we're playing a gig. You know, but they they hadn't thought far enough ahead to know they don't even have a name. <laughs> uh, the story goes that you know 
the guy says, well, sure, I'll promote it. What's the name of your band? And there's like two of them, two or three of them in, you know, right around the phone in near this phone booth. And they look down and there's a there's a, a paper down on the floor of the phone booth with advertising Muddy Waters, right? Rolling Stone, Muddy Waters. And so he just said to him, we're the Rolling Stones. And that was it. That's how it happened. <laughs> Holy smokes. Now, now you know, it sounds too unbelievable to me, but maybe it, it could be a true story because I don't know the whole history of the Stones, but I thought it was it was pretty wild. I just read it a couple of weeks ago, you know, just I had I, that's just I'm a big Stones fan. I never heard that story, man. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, we could certainly look it up and see if I'm just spreading lies. <laughs> yeah, fake news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fake news. But the, uh, no, I thought story you know what there is though there is or was i should say back in the 70s there was a band in yugoslavia called zebra oh okay yeah they put out an album an ep and two singles back in like 74 or something like that well there was a band that from canada called zebra that we were aware of they were a jazz band but they spelled it with two z's they had z z e b r a and uh and they we knew about it but they weren't <laughs> Huh? They put that crowd to sleep. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. The third Z just was a nightcap. But uh but they weren't active anymore. So we figured, you know, well let's just use Zebra. And uh you know, at that time, you know, well we we trademarked the name and uh so we we knew we had it here. I I mean, I since the internet and since, you know, all the streaming and stuff, there've been plenty of bands calling themselves Zebra. Mm -hmm. Uh you know, some reggae bands. The reggae bands seem to really like that name. Zebra you know, Mon. A, yeah, there's <laughs> a couple of zebra. But uh but we haven't had to we haven't like gone after them or anything like that. You know, we do have fans all the time coming to us and going, Oh man, I, I see you got a new album out. I said, No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Or some of them would say, "Did you all change your whole style?" It just, you know, it just doesn't sound when like. When did yours. that reggae calypso album come out, man? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so they're out. There. Your your uh, creative prowess started very young. I mean, you said you were writing songs at eight, nine years old. Was it at that point you knew that you wanted to be in a band, and and or was it just more of like? Uh, a writing thing, you know, like I want to be, I want to write poems or stories or what have you. No, no, it wasn't about writing. It was about being in the band. It was the Beatles, you know, it was Ed Sullivan. Okay. It was all the girls going crazy. Very, very influential on a, on an eight year old. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, my parents took us, my brother and I to see the Beatles in 1964 oh, wow. uh, in September. And we got to see him in New Orleans at the City Park Stadium. And, and so it was at that point that I realized that all this stuff that I'd been seeing on Ed Sullivan is now translating to reality. It's not just a cartoon, you know, right, it's right. not Huckleberry Hound. This is the real deal, you know? <laughs> yeah. So uh, wow. I think then I knew if I could do anything, that would be the thing I'd want to do. But, you know, as you just getting a little bit older, you, you realize that this is not everybody doesn't do this. This is a, you know, kind of a unique thing and it, it's not as easy as you'd like it to be. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, but, you know, like I said, I was into sports. I had my eyes on a lot of different things at that time. I was really into physics and, uh, and I 
that was a, another subject I studied in college after I flunked the two first semesters. <laughs> uh, but I think music was always the, the way I was going to go. And it was actually uh, uh, the band director, uh, a guy named Whitey Bush at the University of New Orleans, who was asking me about my band because he had heard that we were playing and we were doing pretty well. And he's, and I said, yeah, I said, we're playing around here and around there. And I, and I was at least studying in school. I wasn't flunking out anymore. And I, and he says, listen, I want to give you some advice. He says, how, how well are you doing? I, I told him, you know, kind of what we were making. And he says, you know what, if, if you, if this is what you really want to do, go do this. Don't do the school anymore. You don't need it right now. You can always come back. You know, the, the credits are good for seven years. And I said, oh, man, that's forever. <laughs> yeah. 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 And uh, so he, he had a lot to do with me just devoting full time to Zebra at that point. You know, it was I think that was in 1975, you know, mm -hmm. uh, around September, October 1975. We started playing in February and uh, he had a lot to do with my decision to just, OK, let's just focus on this for a while. Good advice. Thanks to him. It worked out. Yeah, yeah, it sure did. Sure did. You know, there's a set of questions I like to ask everybody that does this show. And uh, one of them, especially if for guitar players, is wh who, when you're standing in front of the mirror as a kid playing air guitar, who are you playing to? It's the Beatles. Yeah. I'm a little kid. And, uh, and you know, back then there was you know, not to get off this subject, but there was uh, a big competition between uh, the Beatles and the Dave Clark Five. Mm -hmm. The Rolling Stones weren't even in the picture at this point. I mean, they nobody even heard of them. I mean, I'm talking about a small time frame, you know, 1963, mm -hmm. 1964. And the Dave Clark Five had, you know, uh, tons of hits. Yeah, it was know? Dave Clark Five, the Beatles, and Elvis. <laughs> yeah, there was Elvis and... Uh, and the Dave Clark Five was huge, and my friend around the block was a big Dave Clark Five fan, and I was the Beatle fan. So we were always, you know, going, you know, battling it out over who was the best band, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, of course, eventually he lost, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was interesting. And so, yeah, you know, when I'm standing in front of the mirror, you know, as a little kid, you know, we, we even had uh, – beetle wigs you know they had the beetle wigs you yeah sure little mop like, tops yep and we had three of us there was a, a kid next door who played with us we couldn't play but we would just act like we were playing for all the kids in the neighborhood so we had two black uh wigs and my mother had like a white wig that looked like exactly like the ones we were wearing but when you put it on it looked like phyllis diller you know? <laughs> so, so we gave that wig to the kid next door and uh, Scott Kyle was his name. And uh, and we've got videotapes of that stuff. You know, I got videos of us doing it. My mother oh my uh, transferred them from 8 millimeter, And it's really funny to watch, you know. My oh, that's good and stuff. And Scott. Yeah. That's good stuff. When you, uh, when you got into playing the guitar more, um, were there musicians outside of the Beatles that you uh, emulated or that you gravitated towards as far as guitar players? Yeah, I mean, I started really getting into the guitar playing. Uh, and, you know, it's funny. The first, I think the first solo that I ever tried to play, 
that I didn't play, we actually tried to do this as an audition for a talent show, uh, was by the Monkees, believe it or not. Oh, wow. And it wasn't an easy one. It was it was a song called Valerie. And it was like this Spanish kind of, you know, modal thing that was like flying all over the place. So if you check it out, it's not very monkeyish, you mm. know, but the song was great. It was, you know, written by Boyce and Hart, who wrote all the monkeys songs. And uh, it just had this really cool guitar thing in the front. And that was when I, I think I first got into, you know, wanting to learn you know it wasn't rock guitar at that point like i said it was kind of spanish feel to it but uh start to learn what to do uh some of the bands early bands that i listened to uh were grand funk you know mark loved Warner. grand funk yeah and and mark really made things you know they, they were they, he had great songs and he and he and he put melodies with the guitar you know i mean his his solos weren't real complicated, but they were melodic and you remembered them. So you're waiting for that next part. And, it, you know, it was every bit as much the guitar you were waiting for as the vocal. Yeah. And, a little footnote yeah. on, on uh, Grand Funk Railroad. The first 45 I ever bought with my own money was Grand Funk Railroad's We're an American Band with Creeping on the B-Side on gold vinyl, yellow vinyl. <laughs> and I still have it. A special treat, gold oh, vinyl. Yeah, back then, you didn't see much of that. You know, it was black vinyl, especially in the 45 rack. Remember you used to walk in, it was like 50 45s and... Yeah, uh, I never, I don't think I ever saw a gold 45, but I, at that point, by the time that they were doing Ameri American Band, I I wasn't buying 45s anymore. I just, I remember I, I got it, I was buying albums and stuff, but I had lost interest in Grand Funk at the American band point. You know, I lost interest in them as soon as they put the keyboard player in. And they hmm. started doing stuff like the locomotion and the stuff that really made them popular. That was when I lost interest. I didn't want, I, you know, it was the early, early stuff. Right, and, right. That I, that I grabbed. Captain and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah I and, loved uh, all that stuff too. And, and uh, But I really dug, you know, like, uh, bad time and even the locomotion and all that poppy yeah, kind of stuff yeah. they came out. Listen, with. I listen back to it now and it was the right move for them. You know, I mean, I was what, 11, 12 years old, but that's just how it struck me at the time. And uh, and I, I started listening to other groups. The Almond Brothers was a band I really started listening to. Uh, I, I listened to the live album. I learned a lot of guitar from listening to the live uh, Almond Brothers, the live at the Fillmore and so much uh so much great guitar and that was a step up for me um funk 49 by you know joe walsh and the guys and gang james gang yeah. james gang um now when we're younger we get into bands and we're you know we're rebellious and we're defensive of our bands i mean i don't know if you're as defensive of a band if you're not a kiss fan because those were the ones that got picked on the most. <laughs> so you really had to put up your armor. Um, but as young and we would be, or for me anyway, you know, well, you don't like my band. Well, I don't like your band, you know? Yeah. And um, as I got older, I, I thought, well, you know what? I, I probably should have got into this band earlier when I was younger. Do you have a band like that that you wish that you spent more time with back in the day that you realized and appreciate now? 
I, you know, funny enough, I, I, I never had that competition thing in me. You know, I mean, it, I, I, I guess I kind of grew out of it when after the Dave Clark Five Beetle thing with my friend, <laughs> you know, because we battled it out a long time over that. But um, I was always interested in hearing what somebody would do. And, I, and if I didn't like something, I would just, I wasn't listening to it. So it had to be, there was a lot coming out back then really quick. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, as far as really dis, I mean, there were some bands I disliked over others, but I, I never would compare them to bands that I liked, you know, or say my bands, but I, that didn't happen, you know, after that uh, first little Dave Clark five Beatle period. Yeah. It happened uh -huh. to me with the Grateful Dead. It did. I was like, I had the Grateful Dead. What the, f really? And then my friend of mine said, you got to go to the show. You got to go to the show. So I went to a Grateful Dead show uh -huh. and we had floor seats and everybody's like, you know, and, and the band's taking their time tuning up and finally playing a song in the last 20 minutes. And I was like, the fuck is wrong with you people? <laughs> how, how much acid is in this building? You know, I was like, I'm used to kids blowing stuff up and, you know, yeah. heavy metal and Black Sabbath and, you know, and, and even pop music was more. <laughs> and then in my 40s, I had gotten a box from a friend of mine of uh, like four or five CDs of Grateful Dead live stuff. And for shits and giggles, I put them into my iTunes and I put it on shuffle. And, and I was like, well, you know what? Now I can really appreciate it. I, I wish I wasn't such a closed-minded youth, you know, because yeah. of, you know, defending my Kiss band. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of the American way, you know, it's, it's, it's the football mentality, you know, it's, <laughs> You know, it's my team, your team, and it's my band, your band. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of the way things are. Um, but I, you know, I there were certainly bands that I didn't uh, uh, didn't like that much. You know, but I it wasn't like I was going to be arguing over. But I I didn't listen to them. And and funny enough, Grateful Dead was one of them. You know, uh, when I was really young, I think in uh, like early high school, my friend and I did a recording of uh, Up on Cripple Creek. You know. And I didn't know who it was, but it was kind of catchy and we were just goofing around, you mm -hmm. know, we were just having fun and, and I think we were smoking some pot and just, you know, being stupid. And, uh, and then years later I found out who it was. Um, and you know, Springsteen was something I never really got into the music. I mean, he was good. I could tell they're great musicians and everything, but I wasn't really into the, the music, but I got to see him live when we were on tour and what a freaking show just unbelievable i mean just like you know unlike your 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 situation he really you know he laid it on and uh when he he i guess he had gone out into the middle of the crowd you know walked with his whole band at that point i said well this guy's a showman mm. you know it was uh it was definitely over the top with the show so um you know yeah i mean can you imagine trying to listen to all the rock records that have been put out to this day it's crazy yeah, you know there's impossible. a lot a lot a lot a lot of bands that you know you just don't have the time in your lifetime to do it right know? right i don't have the space <laughs> you know i now with you know mp3s and computer stuff but you can't really appreciate it the same way as you could i mean i used to get stereo review and audiophile magazines just to see what speakers to put on i had a quadraphonic stereo and stuff and now, like, you know, everything almost gets checked out through the phone, you know. Uh, and and I've, I've had instances where I listen to a song and I go, that's eh, a pretty good song. 
and then I'll play it through my speakers in the house, and I'm like, this is a really good song, you know, and it's amazing that, you know, so many people don't really get a chance, because if you don't feel music, you know, it's, it's, listening is kind of like a, a passive thing for me. It's like you got to feel it, you know, so uh, the phone doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you, you got to get a good set of uh, earbuds to listen with your phone. Mm-hmm. You know? But the uh, I think back in the day, the fact that you bought a record, you bought an album, you were kind of committed to it at that point. You know, once you got home with that album, you know, you had the choice of maybe bringing it back. But the odds were they weren't going to take it if you already played it and opened it up, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, so you were kind of committed to listening to this record and you would listen you you know usually i'd listen to the whole thing all the way through but there were several records that i didn't listen to all the way through um and i i had bought it for maybe one song and you know back right. in the 60s and then the rest of them were just kind of throwaways and but um but these days you get to sample a little sample of everything and uh you can pretty much decide whether you want to purchase it or not or whether you want to listen to the whole thing pretty quickly so it's it's definitely a better way of sorting, even if the sound isn't great. You know, the song right. should stand up no matter how it sounds. Um, you know, getting back to the guitar thing, I, I got to say that, you know, when I was like four years old, like three, four, five, my parents had records. And the record that they had that my, stood out to my brother and I was Les Paul and Mary Ford. And Les Paul's guitar playing was just mm-hmm. incredible, yeah. you know, and uh, he was ripping ripping but uh but i'm not even thinking about doing it i'm just running around and it's like making me crazy you know mm-hmm. as a little kid um but you know it was uh, i was always into that that uh you know the dexterity that that he had and he was very tasteful too which was which was great um you know getting back to this uh the thing with the with the albums and stuff i i should have listened to more you know i still should be and i don't you know, I'm, I'm a lazy, you know, I, I get into different things and uh, people tell me, man, you got to listen to this band. You got to listen to that band. And, and it, I, I hate to say it and, and it may not be completely true, but it seems like for the last, you know, 40 years that anything that's new except for rap, you know, is kind of derivative of stuff that was happening back then. You know, I mean, I can pretty much listen to a song and tell you where that came, you know, who who, who influenced these guys, you know. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, you know, unless it's just a crazy, crazy band. But th- there hasn't been anything that was just so new like there was when when I was growing up to, to just say, wow, you, didn't, you never heard this. You know, think about it, 1967, right? If you go back 10 years... To 1957, you know, what do you have? Elvis and you got Bill Haley, and, you know, maybe Chuck Berry, you know, Little but Richard. This, yeah, yeah, but but I mean, you go from there to what was happening in 1967, you know, with all the different bands that were coming out. You had the Moody Blues, you had you know, uh, the beginnings of uh, of Yes, you had the Beatles, just you know, cranking them out, and it was like it was new now. I'm at the age where I wouldn't really know it, but now I'm at the age where I see if I go back 10 years from, from today and 10 years before that and 10 years before that, there's not really that big of a change. Yeah, you know? there's few that stand out as like, oh, 
I cut yeah. new ground, you know, like a band like um, Primus that right. just kind of broke out all the structure that was normally considered <laughs> rock music, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, Primus is, a, is, is an example. I, you know, I've listened to Primus. They're a great band. Drummer is just, you know, is awesome. But it's it's still not, it's not like the first time you heard Hendrix, you know? I mean, it was just different so different that you know it took on its it was like a uh something you'd never seen you're like you're entering a room smelling stuff you've never smelled before you know and that's what it was like back then uh with these bands and you know of course it was fertile ground too you know mm -hmm. the, the bands back then had a big advantage because you had new instruments uh you had the synthesizers you, you had, had guitar technology. amps that were making sounds that had never been worked with before so you know, it was, it was, I'm not saying it was easy to do what they did, but it was sure a lot easier to come up with something new then at that time than it would be now anyway. Uh, but I still look for, you know, still want to hear something really new. And, and I, I thought that back in the seventies, you know, yes, was the, always the real experimental band. I, I was always waiting for them to come up with a sound that would become a standard sound that people would use to write songs. And when I say that, I mean a sound that's like the piano that everybody uses, you know, to write with, you know, they've been, and they still do. The guitar, you know, an acoustic guitar, you know, they write, 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 write with. I was thinking maybe yes, with these synthesizers could come up with something that may not be acoustic, but was so pleasing to the ear that people would just want to gravitate towards it and write with it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, never never happened you know i was kind of disappointed uh the bands back then uh, they started reverting to trying to make the synthesizers uh play uh, symphonic instruments you know brass yeah uh, strings and stuff like that and it seemed like the exploration just kind of stopped uh after tales from topographic oceans i was like what are they doing you know, the, back then, I think, probably to an extent today, too, there's a certain amount of influence that the labels do. Uh, you got to, you, you know, the song is great, but we need to put strings in it, like, you know, you mentioned. There's, I, I think sometimes bands are almost forced into doing stuff to maintain their contract or their maintain the, the, the schedule to putting out albums that the record labels, you know, kind of put their hands down and say, look, this has got to happen. I agree, but that wasn't happening with Yes. Yes was no, but then <clears throat> when the and, disco era came along, yeah, and it had shown in the beginning, and he had no signs of going away. You had this cataclysmic thing going on. You had punk rock and new wave music kind of evolving. You had disco music going. The new wave of British heavy metal was ebbing in, and um, all of a sudden. Every band that was popular, whether they were doing top 10, you know, or they were doing, you know, the top 90, were being asked to do a disco-type song. Right. And, you know, Stones did Miss You, Rod Stewart did it, Kiss did it, um, and so many of these bands. And 90210 from uh, Yes, you know, gave us that kind of a sound. And I thought, like... Wow, that's the most extraordinary sound I ever heard out of Yes, mm -hmm. only because of the kind of band it was, you know. 
This wasn't right. any, you know, fish or, you know, long distance run around or even roundabout. It was, you know, totally different, you know. And, yeah. of course, right time, right moment, boom, it becomes huge. But I wonder how many people went back and said, oh, I want to get more of this, and then bought Fragile and listened and were disappointed because it didn't sound like 80s. Right, right. It had a whole new thing. It was a it like was a this dance, isn't the same band. <laughs> dance beat to it, and it really, you know, it really wasn't. I mean, uh, Trevor Rabin made turned yes into a, another entity, and it was great. Uh, but you know, you, going back to the owner of a lonely heart, you know, when it first came out, you know, you hear that, bang, you know, it sound it's that big sound that's going on in the in the guitar, but the big sound. That big sound is just an orchestra. It's a it's a sample of an orchestra hitting all at once. Bomb. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's all it is. And so it's just somebody playing it on the keyboard. So it's not like it wasn't like a new sound. So, you know, and it certainly wasn't a new style of music. It was just a progressive band doing right. dance, you know. Now, I gotta give it to the dance back in the 70s, some of the synthesizer stuff that was coming out, most of it was happening in dance music. And you'd hear new sounds that would come out with the synthesizers from the dance music, but the rock rock musicians just kind of ignored it. It was like, you know, okay, it's over. And I that was, again, just very disappointed about that aspect of it. But then that's just me, you know? Mm-hmm. When you look back at your career and life in general, what were the biggest challenge challenges maybe that you've come across as Randy Jackson? Uh, depression, fighting depression. Um, you know, I was, uh, when I was a kid going to elementary school, I had a hard time staying awake in school. And it was because I wasn't sleeping at night. You know, I'd be up. I was kind of a night owl and uh, couldn't go to sleep and then get to school in the morning and I'd be falling asleep. Now, I did well in school. I mean, I, I had straight A's. It was like school was easy. So thank God I didn't have a problem with that. But um, but I didn't know what it was at the time. So they, uh, my parents sent me to a, a psychiatrist and, you know, they prescribed medication. Uh, first, they put me on, uh, was it, uh, yeah, it was a, the, what's the uppers that they give the kids? Amphetamine? Like, it's an amphetamine, but it's like it's it's like an Adderall or something like that. Uh, oh, you know? uh, the thing begins with an R. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what, yeah. what you, know, you know what I'm I've heard of it. So anyway, they sent me to school with that. And, you know, it might have kept me up if they had given me like four times the amount. But I still was falling asleep in school and I still was staying awake at night. So it wasn't working. So then they tried the other thing. They tried to give me sleeping pills and they worked. OK. I had sleeping pills and I was taking those throughout, you know, uh, elementary school and up into my uh, middle school. And then, of course, you know, I, the, the pot started appearing everywhere and now I'm self-medicating. I'm not even thinking about that stuff anymore. And um, and I think, uh, you know, with between the alcohol and the and the and the pot I was smoking and anything else I was doing was kind of getting me through through it not having to deal with the with the depression but it was still there i knew it was and it would come like seasonally hmm. you know a lot of times it would come 
like around the end of the summer, as if like September, October is when I'd have it. And it was de debilitating. It wasn't just, uh, you know, you're feeling bad and you, you couldn't move. You know, you're like crippled, crippled. And, uh, you know, I'd, I would just, I mean, I can't, you, you can't describe it to somebody that hasn't experienced it because they just don't understand, you know, how, how could you not just get up and go and move? But it's, uh, it's like, well, you know, all you could do is imagine that on your worst day, that something that, you know, on a scale of one to 10 is a one on how hard it would be to do it for you, you know, on any task that you're doing becomes a 20. Mm that's that's what it's like it's like you're not even like in the place to, you can't even think about it because you know what a struggle is going to be and it's all mental it's not like a it's not a physical thing it's a mental thing and it's you know anything i can relate it to you know when you're really trying to push through it is that uh you, just the worst stress you could imagine and uh I, so I, I lived with it for a while long time and you know even through the uh beginning of zebra and everything, you know, I was, you know, drinking heavily and getting through things. Uh, and it wasn't until I completely stopped uh, partying uh, after the after the first zebra record that uh, I said, Okay, I want, you know, I'm gonna I want to see if normally, this is what it is, if I'm depressed, normally, if that's, you know, without any, maybe it's the drugs, maybe it's the drinking that that are doing the caused me to be depressed but i went 10 years you know without doing a thing and it, i still i was getting these depressed actually they were they were they were even worse because i couldn't even you know have a drink when i was starting to feel there so but i was determined to figure it out so i went 10 years and then uh, make a long story shorter i uh i went to a, a psychiatrist then and they prescribed some medication to me and i think the first medication was uh made me break out in hives you know i said <laughs> well this ain't gonna work out and uh and so then uh but they find found one that i was on for about 20 years that helped really did did a, did a good job and then that wasn't working anymore and i uh i switched to another one that that seemed to do the same thing and uh recently the last like five maybe five four or five years um i've been on a really even Stephen playing field. It's been, I've, I feel really fortunate. I've been taking this combination of medication that's just really worked for me. And it's like magic. You know, I haven't had a depressive episode of any type, you know, unless there was something bad that happened. You know, I might get a little depressed from that. But, you know, that was what the thing with my depression was, was that there wasn't anything to be depressed about. You know, I'd be depressed and I'd just be crippled from nothing. You know, there wasn't any death. There wasn't any like hardship monetary. There wasn't any, you know, nothing to point at and say, uh, you know, that's why I'm depressed or that. And in a way, that's fortunate because otherwise I may have just blamed it all on on outside stuff. But it was right. for me, it was all chemicals, all chemicals. Yeah. I, thank you for sharing that. I, I. On a personal level, after what happened at B.A.B., I got, we had the holidays, we had Chris, you know, after Christmas, I had my birthday, and then we had a new grandchild in the family, and planning a wedding, and I got married, and then we went on a honeymoon and decided, hey, now's the time to move to where I've always wanted to go, North Carolina, 
and we move, and then you set up house, and da, 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 da. And so we're talking about almost a year after I leave BAB, and I find myself sitting in the house, and I, I have like five or ten things that I could do, at least four that I have to do, and I couldn't do anything. I couldn't lift myself out of the chair. And I was like, you know, I'm not clinically depressed. I know I'm sad, but sadness never, for lack of a better term, crippled me. I just, I couldn't focus. Everything that I would think, all right, I'm going to do this to get me out of it, and then not do that, and then try and do something else and start it and feel like I should be doing something else. Yeah. And it well, was you, you, you know what You know what I'm talking about. Maddening. And, yeah. you know, I, and I, same thing. I was like, you know, I'm riding this whole high horse that I haven't done cocaine since, you know, 1993, coming up on, you know, 30 years and blah, 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 blah. But I was drinking and smoking weed to just keep myself from feeling, I guess. You know, I didn't, you know, want to feel what I was feeling. And at the same time, when I wasn't drinking or smoking, I couldn't figure out what the fuck I was feeling anyway. <laughs> and it was it was miserable. And this, you. I'm supposed to hear this and maybe somebody else is too, because if, if you could survive it since you're a kid and manage it, you know, and be still Randy Jackson, that sweetheart of a guy with that big heart and that talent up on stage, giving people what they want. Well, hell, I, I haven't had it. It's what you got. And, you know, I, I at least got some reasons. I know I was depressed because I left my family up in New York and I was, I was sad because of what happened to PAB. And, you know, and, and even a, a doctor told me, he said, well, look, you just got kicked in the nuts like five times. You know, you're going to take time to recover. Stop trying to force yourself to get out of where you are. Mourn. You know, you had the yeah. death of a career. And, um, yeah, that's, 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 you know, I, I kind of did that when uh, Atlantic decided not to release the China Rain record. Um, you know, I'd worked years on it, and it was the same kind of thing, you know, all this work and then nothing just in one day. Um, so, yeah, but for you, it was 35-year career, 45-year career, and, uh, and, and it's a lot to— It was three to months before my 40th anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, nah. <laughs> Well, that happens to it happens to a lot of people, you know, in any any kind of occupation, you know, when they leave their jobs, they got to get adjusted, you know, oh, man, how's your retirement, you know, and it's not always that great, you mm -hmm. know, because you really did love what you were doing. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's a it's a hard adjustment. So, you know, I I, yeah, I applaud you for getting up and, and doing this, you know, you, you know how good you are at this. And uh, I think it's a great thing. You know, you'll get tons of interviews and uh, it's uh it's good therapy. I mean, for me, it was electronics. You know, I when the record didn't come out, I went in and I put together this freaking computer show with the lights and everything, mm -hmm. you know, being controlled by the computer. And I spent a year putting that together and uh, it kept my mind off of, you know, the depression. But for like two weeks, I was just 
couched. <laughs> yeah. Just say, I'm trying to figure out what just happened, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I, I finally got, you know, turned around when I started realizing that everybody was asking me, write a book, go back on the radio, do fingers, metal shops. And I was like, I felt like a pressure to do something and I didn't know which thing to do. And then I was, I came to this point where it's kind of like hit this epiphany and I was like, wait a minute, I've been working since I'm 14. I just wrapped up a 40 year career. I deserve to do whatever the fuck I want. If I want to ride my motorcycle all day or sit in front of PlayStation or whatever, you know, build birdhouses in the garage, I can do whatever I want. And I think that thought freed me enough to go, I really loved doing Fingers Metal Shop, and I really love people. And let me bring back Fingers Metal Shop. How am I going to do that? Let me build a studio and then, you know, learn about rigging so I can hang curtains around this room. And, you know, what am I going to do it on the cheap? We take some moving blankets and duct tape them to the floor and, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, bought some equipment, put it all together and got it done. And then went back to the couch. And I was well, like, oh, okay. what the... What did you just do? You just spent all that money and time, and now you're not going to do anything with it. And I'm like, well, I don't know what to do with it. And I said, well, stick with Fingers Metal Shop. Start with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that'll happen. You, you, you'll be involved in a project. You've got, you know, sections of each project to do. You'll finish one, and then it's all of a sudden like the switch just will turn. If it's the wrong time for you, for me. Anyway, the switch will turn and I'll go right back to the depression. I can't even remember why I did what I did and what I was supposed to do next, you know, yeah. or really why am I doing this, you know? So, uh, yeah. It's, you uh, get that now what moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So but, uh, but it's, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're getting through it, though. That's it's a good thing. Yeah, with, just, the, with the help of you, you know, and, and I figured I, I could get, you know, I mean, this is kind of self-serving because of the fact that I, 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 I desire to talk to people. I love uh, people, and I don't know people down here like I did up there. So, you know, you kind of get addicted to everybody going, fingers, fingers, fingers. you know. Um, yeah. It's nice to be acknowledged, you know, and down here you don't get that. So um, talking to you and other people is fulfilling, and playing Metal Shop fulfills my musical desire and the, the ability to give people, you know, something that they're asking for. And, uh, you know, now in this day and age where we've been through corporate America a few years and learned marketing and stuff, I'm like, well, Fingers Metal Shop is the brand. And my interview skills all came from Fingers Metal Shop. So it's Fingers Metal Shop presents Rock Fans Roll Over's Recovery. And uh, it started out as a, as a book uh, but I don't have the mental discipline <laughs> to, to write a book. You know, I've got shit through computers and on books and papers and chapters. And and I said, you know what? I'm going to just take the conceptual idea and put it to a podcast. And then learning all that. How does this work? What the fuck is Zoom? And this and that. And here we are. And, and, and I'm doing it. And I feel proud of myself, at least that I got to this point. And it's whether it makes money or not. I'm doing it because it fulfills me, my creative desire. And uh, I couldn't do it unless people like you agreed to do it. So thank you. Oh, yeah. And, and look, as a musician, you know, when when I started playing music when I was a kid, I mean, I did I was I wasn't doing it because of the money. I wasn't going to make I wasn't thinking about all the money. These guys are thinking about I was girls. Like, so, 
I was thinking about, yeah, the girls, the attention, uh, and I loved the music. You know, the music was great. It, it inspired me. So it was always about the music. And I think for everybody who's ever played music, you know, when they, it, it's, that's why they keep playing. They can't get away from it. You know, either, either you're a professional musician and you've been making your living doing it, or you're, you know, you, you played music and you got into another field, but you still play music. You know, you get your bands together, you go out on the weekends and it's, it's, it's therapy. Just like, you know, what you're doing is therapy for you. You know, it, it we love doing it. It's creative mm -hmm. and, um, and it keeps us, you know, level. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to have an outlet, you know, and a lot of people don't have one, you know, it's hard to, to, to understand that for me from, well, how could you not, what do you mean you don't listen to the radio? You don't listen to music. That just sounds so alien to me. But well, some people, some people, it's sports. Right. Tennis could be golf. You know, it doesn't have to necessarily be music, but something, you know, that people have. If you don't have a hobby, you know, that, that you enjoy, you better enjoy TV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoyed my job so much that I always said to my PDs that this isn't a job, it's a lifestyle. You yeah. know, fingers... The persona, I mean, it's a nickname, but it, it took on like this life of its own, especially, I'd say right after Beggar's Opera. I was doing White Fire Roadie for almost two years and then Beggar's Opera for two years, DJing there. And then I started driving the van for BAB. And I was an introverted kid. I was bullied. I was always being, you know, picked on and stuff. And, and <laughs> this is way before Kiss was even around. And... uh <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this this fingers thing became like this suit of armor. Like I was less introverted. I felt more confident. And I never took it to the point where like my ego ran away with it because I always thought an ego was a bad thing. Um, but then I, as I got older, I was realized, you know, you kind of have to have an ego to do a job like this. If you're going to get up on stage and sing for an audience, you need a bit of an ego. If you're going to get on the radio and to, you know, do interviews and you know, whatever. Yeah, uh, we all we all have egos, and you do have to have an ego to just do it to go out in the in the morning and just face the guy across the counter when you're ordering coffee. You know, it's called confidence. You know, mm -hmm. but you just can't have too much confidence. You get in trouble, and people start not digging it. You know, yeah, yeah, you're a little overconfident. So you got to really balance it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be a real big turnoff. You know, I uh, when I was writing this book and conceptualizing rock fans' rollovers and recovery. You know how, like, on the first page of a book, there'll be some kind of a quote? And so I came up with this quote that was succinctly about me. And it goes, I stand in the shadow of my own grandiosity, shackled to my fears. And I was like, and I told my therapist that. And he goes, you better write that down. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. And I, I was like, like that's exactly how I feel sometimes, you know? Yeah, but uh, it's uh, it, that's a great that's a great line, a great line. So, Absolutely. looking back at your career, what's the biggest high point? Hmm. Sure, there's more than one. I mean, yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I think you know, I got a thrill when when I was driving back from a gig uh, in Long Island in uh back in 1978 or 79 
forget which year it was. So it had to, it had to be 79 or 80. And I heard a zebra song on WBAB that wasn't at, you know, five o'clock in the afternoon when they were doing the, the, uh, you know, homegrown, it wasn't on homegrown. It was actually in rotation at the station. It was the first time I'd heard it, you know, and it really thrilled me, you know, to hear that. I was like, wow, I pulled the car over and I listened to it. And, uh, that was probably from the homegrown album, right? Yeah, well, it 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 could have been, and I I know that Bob was playing stuff, you know, that wasn't on the homegrown, but I, I'm pretty sure it was Who's Behind the Door I was listening to, so it probably was the homegrown. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I really got a thrill out of that, even though you know there'd be, you know, getting the record deal and all that stuff later on would be, of course, a, a thrill and stuff, but uh, that for me was like a moment, yeah, you know, yeah, that I won't forget, yeah. So conversely, what what would you consider your lowest point? Uh, I think you know, uh, you know, whenever when Atlantic dropped us, it was kind of a low point. Um, but you know, it didn't take the the fight out of us. No, uh, no, I'm not saying it necessarily has to. Yeah, and then uh, and again with the uh, you know, as far as business goes. The China Rain thing was just hit, scratching my head. Although, after I look back on it, you know, after six months of uh, kind of figuring out, because I hadn't really been paying attention to what was going on in the music world at that point. Um, but Atlantic evidently had been like one of the last labels to get on the grunge bandwagon. And they just weren't selling records. They had had two quarters where they were in the red. And they just couldn't sink any money into, you know, 80s rock anymore. They had to start looking for... Uh, something new. And so uh, you had Stone Temple Pilots come up, which was great. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they pulled themselves out of it. But uh, I think that was a low point for me. And maybe it was a low point for them, too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I look at it, you know. But uh, yeah, those two points. I mean, my, you know, uh, people dying, is it's never fun. My parents passing, you know, yeah. always tough. Um, as a career goes, you know, we've been pretty fortunate. Uh, I got to say the fact that all three of us are still alive is pretty amazing. And on uh, tour. <laughs> and and playing, yeah. I mean, and Guy is playing better than ever. You know, he's he's playing better than he was when, when I first met him. You know, he was a monster, you know. And uh, he's just like, he's off off the hook. Yeah. It's unbelievable. He's, uh, he's going to be on a future episode as well as Felix. Um oh. And 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 they uh, they've both agreed to do it. And, and you know, when you have uh, the kind of schedule that you have, you know, going on tour, running around the country, we're older now. We have different kinds of, you know, um, responsibilities aside from being kids running around being in a band. How do you at this stage of the game manage stress? Um. Just, you know, my, my mother told me, very simple, just don't take life too seriously. And when I'd get really depressed, you know, like we were talking about before, mm -hmm. that was one of the things that I, the, kind of my mantra, don't take this too seriously. And knowing that it would pass, that it wasn't going to stay like this right. was also something that kept me going, you know. Um, and I think that that, you know, when it gets like that, that that's I just step back and I go, you know, if I if I was looking back at this five thousand years from now, you know, how serious would this really be? And and it, it really 
takes a lot of the stress off of you. You know, you can like not make such a big deal out of it, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the things you stress over really aren't that big of a deal. You know, I know a lot of times I'll get stressed over and you just can't avoid it. But uh, I try to just, you know, ignore the, the little things and, and focus on the big things. And uh, I think that's helped me a lot. Also, you know, I, as far as like having to do more stuff, uh, the, the fact that I've kept up with the technology over the years has really helped me to do some of the things quicker than I used to have to. And so it affords me a little more time off, mm -hmm. certainly. And, uh, you know, uh, it's really mental. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, you know, gotta... like they say, this too shall pass. And if you can keep that in the frame of mind, you know, every storm passes and generally after every storm there's a clearing and sun and a better situation and some storms you know leave wreckage and you know it happens sure. but uh you rebuild and you overcome you know you adapt and like the marines and adapt and overcome i've never had a, a a bad experience that was as bad as i thought it was at the time when i look back on it in the future mm -hmm. never had you know where i went oh yeah it was just as bad as what i thought it was going to be it was always, you know, not as big of a deal. And, uh, and experiencing that over time helps you get through the tough times later on because you know, oh, I'm stressing out over this, but it really isn't. I'm making it more of it than it really is because mm -hmm. I know that because looking back at all the other ones. And so just having the experience of getting older and, uh, and uh, you know, having been through all these things, I think has helped me to avoid a lot of the stress. You know. The mind could be a terrible thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you could go back in time and change one thing in your life, what would it be? Ugh. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I've got a great family. You know, my wife and I have been married for 42 years. Uh, I love my kids, got grandkids and, I haven't had any like real tragedies, you know, happen with, you know, any part of my family. Uh, my Thank both God. my parents lived to a, a ripe old age, and so, you know, I I can't imagine that I would change anything. Release because, China rain, huh? Release China rain. Well, you know, you could look back and say that, but you know, the songs are still here, you know, and you know, you made them. Yeah, fortunately or unfortunately, they people would still listen to them, you know, so they're still usable, you know, it's not like I got a bunch of, uh, you know, Benny Goodman songs you know, in my <laughs> pocket, you know, ready to come out in 1969. But uh, yeah, I don't I can't, you know, to me, it's, it's all a journey. And you just you learn along the way. Mm -hmm. And and I don't think I would change anything, honestly. Okay. You know? I, I, respect I mean, I, that. I, I, I can imagine if things were different, that it might not have been so good. Uh, you know, like you, you were talking about earlier, you like, you know, when people say, hey, fingers, you know, how's it going? You know, and that's, and it is, it's cool. But when I think about the kind of fame that like a Michael Jackson or the Beatles or, you know, Elvis, that's, that, yeah, that just, can't walk out without people looking at them. I don't know that I'd want to be that person. It's a lot to deal with. Mm -hmm. 
especially I'm, I'm the kind of person that wants to, you know, be liked. I don't, you know, I don't want to make enemies, but to have to, to have so much to, to do to please everybody that's around you, you know, when you're in that position. And I, I just, I, I think I'm, I'm happy where, where, where I'm at, you know, it's a lot of work, you know, yeah. you got to have a thick skin to, to be able to do that. You know, I mean, Paul McCartney's navigated it very well, you know, yeah. but you know, but you know, even he gets slammed occasionally, you know, by people, uh, and look, he's a human being, you know? Yeah. You but know, God bless him. He's, 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 he's done it well. He seems to be, uh, open to being, you know, available to people when they do corner him and stuff. I mean, I've never seen anything where he get the hell away from me, you know, or, or been, uh, I mean, I'm not saying it never happened. I don't know, but he seems to be one of those guys that kind of really manages that situation very well. You know? Well, you need to be, you need to be a people person. Mm -hmm. And I think that anybody or most of the bands that come up, you know, from the clubs are people persons. They, they, they talk to people, they, they were dealing with people in the clubs and, you know, those are the, some of the toughest, you know, interactions that you're going to have. So if you're doing well and people are coming up to you, it becomes a little more easy. You know, mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, he, he, he enjoys it and he's, you know, he, he, he likes people like you, you know? So, so let me ask this, uh, final question. What advice would you give to young up and coming artists? I right now today, December, what is this? 7th, <laughs> yeah. 2023. I would say today, right now, get on your computer and learn as much about AI as you can. Artificial intelligence is going to be a big part of the music scene. It's it, it you need to be able to use it as a tool and not fear it. You don't need to like fight it, you know, you because you won't you can't fight it. It's not it's not fightable. It's uh you need to learn to use it as a tool. It's like, you know, uh and and there are plenty of people out there that, you know, I want to use the amp, the old amp. I, I you know the the amp from the 1966 is better, you know. For me it was never like that. I mean, I'd listen to these things and go, yeah, it's good, you know. It might be, you know, nice tone, but Believe me, technology makes things easier and uh, and everybody's going to be using it. So if you have talent, make sure you understand what you can do with AI and use your talent and use that as, you know, a way to make you make yourself soar quicker. Use it as much as you can. Do you if think not, AI is going to give people the ability to make music that is more created by AI and less created by a human? I think AI can do that, mm -hmm. um, but I don't think AI is at the point right now anyway, where it would really be able to, uh, I mean, visually you can see things that it does that are, are really off the chart, but creatively, as far as music goes, you know, it'll, there'll be a day when you, you just feed it, you know, all, every Beatles song in the world and then say, now write the next, you know, 200 songs for this band. And, it'll do it, you mm -hmm. know, and we may like them or we may not. The lyrics may mean something or they may not. But one thing that that AI won't be able to do is take away 
the artist's experience. You know, when the Beatles wrote all those songs, the lyrics, they were writing about certain events in their lives. And I think that that connection and that moment in time is more important. Maybe AI will will do that. It'll have all the information about the news that's out there. Uh, maybe it'll write a song for lo people locally and refer to local things in it, you know, and uh, but it's not happened. That's not happened yet. So you better to know better to know your foe than to to not know it and uh keep your you enemies know. close and your, <laughs> your friends <laughs> close your, your friends close, close and your enemies close your AI yeah. right there <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's going to be crazy you know it's it's going to be a nutty nutty time and uh you know embrace it that's what i would say that's my big advice today okay well don't be afraid of the big ai you heard it right here from the big guy. <laughs> there you go. Randy, thank you so much for spending time on rock and roll, uh, rock fans, rollovers and recovery. I am uh, flying by the seat of my pants doing this thing, and 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 you, you made it very easy to do today. And sorry to anybody who was hearing all the stupid notifications going off. I'll have to figure that out still. <laughs> hey, di didn't bother me, so I think you're doing good. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it didn't come across in the recording either, but I think it did. But who cares? That's Anybody that's interested in seeing the band uh, and you want to find out where they're going, go to thedoor.com and you'll or, get... Or, or zebraband.com. Or zebraband.com. Zebraband.com, yeah. Okay, and you'll get the uh, tour listing and where they're playing and where where's your next gig? Next, Probably next week, I think, you're going back out, yeah. right? Uh, we're playing in Pompano Beach next Thursday and then on... Uh, and then we play in uh, Clearwater on Saturday. Okay, make sure you send send your uh, take your fingers from my hair out to me. Yeah, you got <laughs> it always. Love you, brother. Thank you so much, and uh, enjoy the rest of the tour. Thanks, fingers. Love you too. All right, buddy. Bye bye.